I want to welcome you all to Let's Talk Low Vision, which is our, the Council of Citizens with Low Vision's monthly call on the third Tuesday of every month at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. And we usually try to do something especially of interest to people with low vision, whether it's been your lot in life for the last few months or for since birth. We all have a lot of information to help one another. We also have an awful lot of experience behind us all, and we are all very willing to share that with one another. Tonight, we have an an especially wonderful presentation, and that is by Dr. Suleiman Alibi, who is a low vision specialist here in the greater metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. Dr. Alibi did his education at the University of Houston. He then did the low vision program for the Lions at Wilmer Institute at Johns Hopkins University. He has been in the low vision field here in the D.C. area since the, I think, 1993 and started a an organization called Low Vision Services here in this area in 2008 and now also has a second OD in with him and in the, those offices. They actually, he also contracts with the National Eye Institute and just comes with an amazing number of credentials. He's been my low vision specialist pretty much since I came moved down to Washington in the late 90s. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Alibi to all of you. And we are going to talk about low vision strategies. And I'm sure he's got a great presentation for us this evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening to everyone. Thank you very much, Terry, for that very kind introduction. It's really a <laughs> pleasure to to be here this evening to talk to all of you. And as many of you probably know, I enjoy the interaction much more than I enjoy just lecturing and telling people what they should do or shouldn't do or what I think they should do or shouldn't do. So whenever we get an opportunity, we should do that. If you raise your hand or interrupt me, that would be perfectly fine and perfectly valid. I would be happy to to stop and take your question or be interrupted. So with that said, let's talk about low vision and low vision strategies. As Terry pointed out, I've been doing this for a few years now, and I've learned more from all of you and working with people who are visually impaired than I ever did from my textbooks and my teachers and so on and so forth, because real life and real world is sometimes quite different than what you learn from a book or what somebody tries to tell you. You have to really experience it for yourself. So what I can say is that after all these years, the thing that stands out most in my mind is the basics and the foundations are still the most important things that always apply, no matter who I see, no matter when I encounter a patient, no matter what stage they're in. Like Terry said, you could be here with vision impairment issues from early childhood, or you could be newly diagnosed and starting to have difficulties. Um, Some of these things which I have learned apply at all times, no matter what stage of this journey you're on. 
And, and this is a journey, as all of you here probably can appreciate very well, that having vision issues is something that requires a lot of mental adjustment to as much as it does some practical adjustments to. And many times it's that mental approach, that mental adjustment and acceptance of the vision loss, which is more challenging. And we live in a world that's highly visual. We live in an environment in which the vision is prized. There have been a number of studies done on the impact of vision loss. And often people say things like, I'd rather be diagnosed with cancer than to think I'm going to go blind. And you think, well, that doesn't make any sense at all because if you have cancer, you're going to die. And I've had patients say that to me that, you know, I'd rather die before I'd lose my sight. And again, you think, well, I think this is an overreaction because you have the opportunity to live. That means you're going to be able to do things. But if you're not alive, then you don't even have a starting point. But I think the point really is that for most people, at least in the sighted world, they perceive this aspect of vision loss as something really awful, really terrible, and equated to to a, a life-threatening condition. And um, that's the way people think, that how would you ever function um, without vision? And so that's the, prem- that's the premise of a lot of patients that I see. They come in and they're afraid and they're frightened. And that's really all they're thinking about is, am I going to go blind? Sometimes they've been just told you're legally blind and they act like they've lost a lot of vision. So I'll, I'll often say to them, you know, you, you did pretty well today. And they say, well, I'm legally blind. And I go, yeah, but that's just a legal definition. It's a government definition. Um, blind is not, doesn't legally blind doesn't mean you have to now bump into the walls as you walk into the room here. You, you still have vision. You have to make use of the vision that you still have. So for many people, this concept of blindness, legal blindness, is, is, are really things that society itself has somehow created in our own minds about, you know, what, what must it be like to be blind or legally blind? And then, of course, we have this term low vision. What does low vision mean? Again, for the sighted world, either somebody has vision or they're blind. There, there can't be anything in between. I have patients who are cane travelers, for example, who still have vision. Maybe they have RP, so they've lost peripheral vision, um, but they usually have good central vision. And they'll encounter people who will say, well, I just saw you read that. Why are you walking with a cane? <laughs> and, and again, for all of us here, we go, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've heard anybody ask me. But of course, people think, well, if you have a white cane, you must be blind. Why then can you see certain things? So again, helping people understand what is it to be visually impaired or low vision um, is difficult. It's difficult because, again, people have a perception of what low vision or, or of what blindness or no vision should be. And also people make judgments by appearance. If you see somebody with a cane, you assume they're blind. Of course, for most of us who are visually impaired, if you're visually impaired, what should you look like? It's easy to understand somebody's disabled if they're in a wheelchair or if they have a walker or if they have a prosthetic leg 
or if they have a prosthetic hand or something like that, it becomes immediately obvious to the observer. But to the sighted world, when they see somebody who's visually impaired, they look kind of normal. They don't have anything. You know, people say your eyes don't look white. Well, you're not supposed to look white because you're visually impaired or low vision. Or they say, you make eye contact with me when I'm talking to you. Well, that's because you've learned how to direct your eyes to look at people when, when you're talking to them. So it does confuse, does confuse the sighted world. So again, going back to what I started with, the, the um, fundamentals are that e- each of us, each of you who have a vision loss or visually impaired, have to learn to accept that the sighted world around you will not necessarily understand or be able to comprehend what your vision is or isn't. And they have a perception of, my gosh, what could be worse than this? And that sense of pity or whatever they feel for you, which again is not really helpful. What visually impaired people want to do is do things like everybody else wants to do. And they want to enjoy the things that everybody else wants to enjoy. So for those of you who who are all nodding your heads and saying, yes, yes, we've been there, done that. Um, and for those of you who are, who are here for the first time, who are newly diagnosed, you, you, you will just have to keep some of these things in the back of your mind. And remember that pretty much the sighted world is ignorant. And it's important that we educate the sighted world as to what it means to be blind or visually impaired or low vision and that it's not all black and white. It's not that you're blind or you see, there is something in between. And even those different degrees of vision in between can be harnessed and used. And different people have different abilities to harness that capability of using their vision or their low vision or limited vision. So it's something that I find myself continuously doing with the family members of the patients I see, I'm constantly having to educate them as much as I'm educating my own patients about what it means to have low vision or to be visually impaired. So having said that and having got to that point of saying, okay, I accept I'm visually impaired, I have low vision, how do I next function? How do I manage best in this very sighted world that we live in? And historically, services for blind and visually impaired people have not belonged in the medical model, even though rehabilitation of limbs and things like that have existed in a medical model. We've always known about occupational therapists and physical therapists and speech therapists. In the vision rehabilitation world, we've had rehabilitation teachers, um, orientation and mobility specialists who have not historically been part of the medical system. And so this has not helped either because it seems like if you've developed a vision problem, you somehow no longer belong in the medical field. Many, many patients will come to me and say, the doctor said, well, there's nothing more I can do for you. What do you want me to do? You've now lost your vision. My work ends. I have nothing more to do with you now that you you don't have something I can treat or cure or something I can provide glasses for. And people do feel abandoned. They say, well, where do I go for help? Well, I think there's a blindness agency. And think about it. Um, we have these 
departments for the blind and vision impaired or the divisions for the vision um, rehabilitation of blind individuals. We have the schools for the blind and so on and so forth. So people think, well, now I have to enter a new world, a different world, rather than having a sense of continuum. There should be a sense of continuum, just like somebody who breaks a hip or loses a limb and has to have some type of prosthetic work done, then undergoes rehabilitation. They have physical therapists who work with them and they learn to adapt to their new hip, new prosthesis. Even somebody who's had a stroke might be paralyzed. Doesn't mean we say to them, now you have to go to somewhere where they make these contraptions that will help you. It's still considered part of a continuum of medical treatment or rehabilitation. So I think a lot of uh, eye doctors in particular have stayed away from this field of vision rehabilitation simply because it didn't exist in a medical model to begin with. And if if they had any encounters with any um, blindness rehabilitation programs, they were outside the medical system. Now, the VA probably is a good place where this this is a bit of an exception, where the VA has maintained that continuum of care for their veterans so that if, if an individual loses their vision in battle or while serving, they do receive this continuum of care and it's all integrated so that the, the very place they would get medical care at the VA, they also get rehabilitation care, whether it's physical rehabilitation or vision rehabilitation, and it's all considered very much a continuum of the system. But only recently has the real world, if you like, the world outside the VA, the world we all live in, um, started to accept vision rehabilitation. And I think that has come about largely because the main cause of vision loss now in this country is due to aging problems. If we look at the disbursement of vision loss in this country, you will see that it amounts to individuals over the age of 65, where the numbers go almost exponentially higher suddenly. And I think you all know that probably the most common cause of vision loss in the older, um, older people is age-related macular degeneration. So between macular degeneration, glaucoma, and cataracts, however, cataracts now are treatable and curable, and people actually get better vision after cataract surgery nowadays. Um, but these, these three do lead the cause of vision loss in older people. And then following up, not too far behind, is diabetic retinopathy, complications from diabetes. So in the under 65 subset of population who are visually impaired, at least in this country, we do find that diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of vision loss. So in an ideal world, you get referred for vision rehabilitation and you see a low vision specialist, someone like myself. And what do we do? What, what does a low vision specialist do? Well, the first thing I always do is try to get a good understanding of how you, the patient, are coping and functioning and what are your needs and goals. I need to understand where are you using your vision? It's different for a child in the school system. It's different for a working age individual who's perhaps commuting to work or spending hours in front of a computer screen. And it's certainly different for 
an older person over the age of 85 who really are concerned about their safety and independence, whether they can drive or stay in their homes. So this is the first part of a low vision evaluation is establishing and understanding what's the level of what is the what are the activities this individual needs to perform and what setting are they in at home and school um, and it could be they could be overlap of course of all these things too the next thing is to understand what's the vision condition causing the problems is it a congenital condition that is stable it could be albinism in which case the vision is pretty stable it's not going to change maybe you had retinopathy of prematurity and had laser treatments you've had cataract surgeries, you've had treatments for retinal detachments, and the vision is stable, and it has been stable for a long time. So those individuals, it's going to be things that you already use that we're going to build on. We're going to build on strategies that already successfully let you get through school or that you're using in the workplace, and we're just trying to find, are there better ways? Are there improvements we can make on that? For people who have a progressive condition, let's say you have diabetes and you have diabetic retinopathy, well, then I have to try to anticipate what could happen down the road, what kinds of changes could impact the vision, and what things do we have to put in place in anticipation of that. It could be somebody with RP, where the visual field loss is now impacting safe mobility. Maybe somebody with RP is still driving. At what point do we have to say, well, now we have to look into alternatives to driving? And like I said, for the older folks with macular degeneration, it's understanding what's what's going on concurrently. Many of them are getting treatments by retina specialists. And they're by and large hoping and anticipating that these treatments might lead to their vision improving or going back to where it was. So in as I sit and talk to my patients about the causes of their vision loss, I also try to understand what do they think is going to happen to their vision. Obviously, somebody with a congenital vision issue like like um, albinism or congenital nystagmus know that my vision's always been like this and it's not going to change unless I get cataracts or something. But some some patients are still wondering that, oh, when will I get better again? And I've had patients even ask me, so at what point will they do the eye transplant for me? So you can see there are people who still believe that somehow there is a an ultimate fix, which will be this final transplant, which is which will be done as a last resort kind of thing. So helping many of my patients simply understand where they're where they are on this sort of trajectory of vision changes and what is realistic in terms of from the medical standpoint, what to anticipate. And also they often are confused by some of the treatments they're getting. You know, why am I getting injections in my eyes for macular degeneration? Or why am I getting laser treatments for diabetic retinopathy? You'd be surprised how, um, how poorly some of my patients really understand what's the medical treatment they're undergoing and what is it trying to achieve? And so a lot of discussion is held about that as well. And that can, so you can see this exam is already taking a long time as we haven't even got to evaluating the vision and figuring out what to give them. But I think it's very important for me to understand where my patients are coming from, what their expectations are, what the understanding is of their vision condition before I can begin to help them and try to propose ways and strategies to help them function better. So the eye exam 
is typical of most eye exams with eye charts, except I'm not looking for the final level of vision. I'm not looking for what we call the threshold. I'm not interested in knowing whether the person can read the bottom line on the chart. I'm more interested in understanding how efficiently the vision is working. So even if they say, I can only read the top line on your chart, the top line on my chart still has five letters. I, I, want, to, I want to hear them read the five letters. And even if they look at the chart and say, I can see the whole chart, I'll still say, but read all the letters, each line. And I'm watching to see how efficiently are they using their vision. When I have them read up close, I don't give them letters to read. I actually give them words and sentences. Again, most of us, if we're going to use our vision up close, it's to read, to see sentences. So I want to hear them read sentences and see what it's like to read actual words and sentences and how fluent are they reading? Do they have missing pieces in their vision? Are they having to hesitate? Are they having to reread things? And that's going to help me decide how efficiently can they work or read a book or see the board at school when there are sentences written on the board rather than isolated letters. And then we measure things like contrast sensitivity in visual fields. This is maybe more helpful for things like mobility to understand how is mobility impacted by loss of contrast? Is it affecting their ability to see the edge of steps and curbs? Contrast is also useful for understanding can they see the food on the plate or recognize people's faces or they're chopping an onion. Can they see the edge of the onion or they're going to cut their fingers off at the same time? So after doing all these measurements, of course, everybody's interested in glasses. That's the most common question I get is, well, can I get some stronger glasses now to fix all these deficits you've noticed in my vision? Well, again, glasses are going to correct things like nearsightedness or farsightedness or, or the presbyopia that we all get when we get older, but glasses don't fix macular degeneration, glasses don't fix glaucoma, or glasses don't give you peripheral vision with retinitis pigmentosa. So it, it often is a bit of a, a wake up for a patient when I, when, when I say, okay, I can try to give you better glasses. And at, at the end of that process, I'll say, well, it didn't come up with a different prescription than what you're wearing, or this is as good as the glasses will be. And, and they're kind of disappointed. They'll say, but I'm willing to wear Coke bottles. I don't care how thick you make them. And I'll say, well, I have Coke bottles and you can try them, but it's not going to be like normal vision. You're still not going to see normally. So for many people that, that in itself sets back the whole appointment and I find they often cannot go beyond that before I can start introducing other strategies. And sometimes patients do have to come back then. Um, but many people have kind of anticipated that and have been told that I couldn't, I'm not going to be able to get stronger glasses. So we then can go to the next step of introducing rehabilitation strategies. And again, these break down into different categories. These break down into strategies to help you see at a distance strategies to help you see up close. And these can be optical strategies. These can be electronic strategies. As, and I'm sure many of you here use different tools, different strategies. Some are optical, some are lenses, some are electronic, some are CCTVs. Nowadays, just about everyone has some type of digital device, at least a smartphone or a tablet. And those are very powerful tools. Technology, I think, has helped our field 
tremendously. Of course, we've always had CCTVs and things, but they've not always been that practical. But having a gadget that fits in your pocket that can do so many things is is incredibly, incredibly helpful. And I'm always impressed that even my patients who don't consider themselves very technologically um, advanced or adept, when I say, well, do you have a phone? They, they do pull out an Android or iPhone or something. And I'll go, well, you have a very powerful tool here. And they'll go, well, I only use it in case somebody calls me or I only use it in an emergency, you know? And I'll say, well, look, you can use it for other things too. And oftentimes I will start there. I'll say, let's use what you've got. Let's see what you have. And I'm always interested in what have my patients been trying to use? Even if they say, well, I picked up a magnifier at CVS. I'll go, well, great, pull it out. Let me see what it's like. Let me see what you can do with it. Because I find it easiest to work from where people already are. It's easy to build on a strategy, a method, a tool that they've been already used to using. And then introduce other things along that side. You know, So if they're using their tablet to magnify, I say, well, you know, there's a, an electronic tablet that magnifies. You can hold it over things and it magnifies. It's called a portable video magnifier. Similarly, they are all using computers. And I'll say, well, you know, built into the computer, there are ways to make it bigger. And we have in our offices, both the Macs and PCs where we can enlarge things and show patients that, look, you can modify this. So you can use these tools to do these things with just with what you've got before you start getting into other things. Now, people are pretty sophisticated in the metropolitan DC area, and they they all have experience with surgeons or dentists or somebody who wears loops in the medical field. And they'll say, well, I saw my dentist using these. Well, can't I use something like that? And so I have examples of those too. And I'll say, yes, you could. But remember, your dentist only needs to look at one tooth. So those kinds of tools are helpful if you just want to look at one small thing. But if you want to try to read a whole book, it's really not practical. So I find this process of letting patients experience and interact with me using tools and strategies that they already have, and then building from there and then introducing other different strategies is, is a good way of getting them into this vision rehabilitation field. And I don't like to say, you have to use this, or you must do it this way, or this is the best way to do it. I will say, here are some strategies. And you know, everybody is different, and everybody adapts to these strategies in different ways. I learned that in a very in, in a very humbling way when I was doing my fellowship at Johns Hopkins, and uh, a patient came in with a marble that had been cut in half, and he said, "The only thing I need to do is to read my bus timetables." I guess they didn't have metro access or anything equivalent, so you're still catching the bus and reading these bus timetables. No, no um, digital devices at that time. And I looked at this marble and I started to laugh and I said, "Oh well, of course we're going to do better than that." Well. An hour and a half later, all my visual aids and magnifiers all over my exam room, and I'm totally exhausted. And the patient goes, well, none of your tools seem to work as well as my little marble here. I go, you're right. (laughs) None of them do work. So he had become so well adjusted and adapted to that strategy, and he had figured out how to use it so efficiently 
that there really wasn't a better way to do it. He did turn out to have the most efficient way to do it. So that's where I learned the hard way that, you know, <laughs> everyone has their own ability to adapt to certain tools and strategies. And so it isn't one size fits all. Not all macular degeneration patients get the same tool. Not all glaucoma patients get the same tool. But each one of you have individual skills and abilities that enable you to do these things. So having got through visual aids and devices, and of course, I always tell them you're going to have to come back and try some different ones. A lot of it is trial and error. And even though I'm prescribing things based on your magnification needs or your efficiency needs, it could be that you don't adapt and we'll have to try a different strategy. But the most important thing is to keep an open mind and we keep working at the goal, the goal, whatever they have decided is most important to them, whether it's reading a book or seeing the board or being able to use their computer Thank to do their you. work. I don't so, blame you. I'm not one. So those things um, are, uh, that's an important process to go through. Now, I would be amiss if I said, yes, I'm able to manage all these things, seeing the patients on my own. And that is wholly untrue. Thank God for state agencies, rehabilitation agencies, blindness agencies, orientation and mobility specialists, and it takes a village. It takes a village. If it wasn't for the TBIs, the teachers for the visually impaired in the school systems, I don't I wouldn't know how well anything I'm prescribing is really working. I rely so much on the outside system of, like I mentioned, these teachers for the visually impaired, rehabilitation teachers, orientation, mobility specialists, even social workers for a lot of this other insight into how this individual is doing in the real world, how we could perhaps implement other strategies which would help them, and how is it fitting in the big picture of in the world that they're in. So I work very closely with the state agencies that we have here in the Metro DC area. So each jurisdiction, DC, Maryland, and Virginia have their own agency. And I am wholly indebted to them as well for their tremendous ability to take what information I provide them about how this patient is doing and what tools and strategies seem to work. And then they try to translate that into the real life out of the clinic room. You know, and oftentimes in the clinic, I can make things work perfectly. I can get the lighting just right. I can set the contrast perfectly. And the individual does very, very well in the exam room. But in the real world, it's different. So I would be, like I said, wholly amiss if I was not to give a lot of credit to the, the village of people that it takes, which now include... Um, occupational therapists as well, talking about that medical model. I refer a lot of patients to the VA. So when I see veterans, I'll refer them to the VA because they have a comprehensive program and that allows them to go to the next level of being able to do things. And then I'm very fortunate that I work in the metropolitan area under the auspices of um, a not-for-profit organization called the Prevention of Blindness Society, and they have a lot of resources themselves, including support groups. And so I'm wholly indebted to them as well for setting up support group meetings. I'm wholly indebted to the 
Washington ear that we have in the in the community as well that reads out newspapers, books and magazines and does a lot of narration at our local theaters and plays and things like that. And so we have in the metro area this entire village where every every piece of this puzzle, every part of it is critical to the overall well-being of my visually impaired individual. They have to be able to take advantage of all these resources. Um, the Lions Club, as we all know, are huge um, champions of visually impaired people. And in our area, the Virginia Lions Eye Institute gives a $3,000 scholarship to any young person who is going to use the money to enhance their education. So that means they could put it to tuition. They could buy a, a tool, a gadget, a CCTV, if that's what they need, or an OrCam or whatever it is. Um, and we tap into all of these resources. We tap into the national resources like the Talking Books programs, but we tap into these local resources as well. And the the interaction with the support groups makes this um, all that much better because then patients hear from other people who are using the resources. My own staff consists of my own patients who are visually impaired. And oftentimes, even before I see the patient in the exam room, my staff member has already been talking to the patient in the waiting room and the patient will come in and say, my gosh, I didn't realize Rachel, I didn't realize Anne, I didn't realize Sandy was visually impaired. And I, I, I'm so inspired by the fact that they work here with you. And I'll go, yeah, they, they're quite capable. They're quite, they're just, you know, learn to adjust and adapt. And yeah, and I, and I want to learn how to use the cane now because I was talking with Sandy and I realized that it's something that would be useful to me as well. So it takes all of us. It takes all of us. And that's why I said right at the beginning, I learn as much from my patients as I do from my own experience or any books and things that I read or any vendors that I talk to about new gadgets that they have. And it does take us all working together to make this whole system work better, including educating the public, right? Like I said, I spend a lot of my time doing that too. Uh, and I speak at all my local Lions clubs here and they all, they all have these questions about, well, what does it mean to be visually impaired? What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? So um, I've and tried to give you an overview there, Terry, and I want to leave enough time for questions and interaction because I feel I've done all the talking now, and I'm happy to expand on things that people have questions or are curious about. Well, I want to thank you. And if anybody does want to, <clears throat> excuse me, if anyone uh, does have a question, please feel free to raise your hands now and if you can unmute, fine. If you can't, we can request that you unmute. In the meanwhile, um, I'm just going to say as good a village, as, as great a village as we have here, we do still run into these same barriers, if you will, uh, the same lack of knowledge. Just today, I was at a doctor's office who thought that I must be totally, I must perhaps I was ill and he thought it must be depression because she's lost her vision. And it was like, what's one got to do with the other? <laughs> and, you know, and, and so I explained to him, I said, you know, it's not, 
it's very different for someone who has low vision all of their life or has or is totally blind all of their life as opposed to someone who's recently lost vision because we grew up with it we never knew anything different and we knew how to, we learned how to cope with it in order to make the most out of life and it was something that he has just never thought of before <laughs> and with that i am going to stop because you're getting a whole lot of questions and i don't know what we've got for uh, questions in uh, Clubhouse, but we'll take a couple of these first. Area code 614, if you would like to ask your question, please. Okay. Am I unmuted? Yes, you are. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, that was very well said. My question is about um, what do you recommend for you? what you originally was talking about, the mental part and acceptance? Okay, that's a very good question. Oh, and I have RP. You have RP. Okay, all right. You know, that is the most difficult thing of all because everybody's ability to accept and adjust is going to be different. The model that I actually got my training in had social workers integrated into the rehabilitation model. So all my patients would first interact with the social worker who would ask these questions. Okay, you have vision impairment. Is it new? Is it old? Is it progressing? Is it stable? And how are you coping emotionally with that? And I often ask patients that very same question as I'm sitting there, I'll go, so, okay, you've told me a lot about your vision, things you want to do, and so on and so forth, but how are you coping emotionally? And sometimes people just break down, and they've been telling me things quite matter-of-fact all along, and I'm taking all my notes and writing everything down, typing everything down, and suddenly this one question, and it's, It's a total meltdown. So when that happens, I do try to understand, is is this something that I can talk to them about that, like I said, my staff are visually impaired, can give them some support, and are there resources within their own family who could begin to understand this, who might be able to help them through this? Or is it going to require professional help? And for some of my patients, it does come down to that. I would refer still to uh, first to a social worker who does counseling. We we have a, um, a very good social worker. Her name is Nina Glasner. You may have even heard of her, some of you. Um, so I'll often contact Nina and say, I have somebody here who's, I think, really struggling with this. And I would like you to spend some time and talk to them if it's if it's more than that and i think this person is just not coping well uh, then i will talk to their doctor i mean their primary care provider and say you know this person is very depressed like terry was saying you know the assumption there the person is very depressed and is having trouble coping and um i think they're going to need either more professional intervention or some kind of therapy to help them cope with this. Now, 
most of the time, it does seem if we talk about things, you know, many times patients have been afraid to ask certain questions like, am I going to go blind? And when would I lose all my vision? You know, you've told me now you have RP, for example. And the truth is nobody knows the answer to those questions. And even if somebody says to me, well, my retina specialist told me I'll be blind in six months or six years or whatever it is. I I don't think anybody can answer those questions. And I'll try to say to some of my patients that, okay, we'll take it one day at a time at this stage because we don't know. And we can say things are going to change. The question is, will you be able to adjust and adapt to this change? Because what is it that you're really afraid of? Is it you're afraid of darkness because you're thinking of blindness as darkness? Or are you really afraid that you're going to have to give up your job? Are you really afraid you're not going to be able to drive? Are you really afraid that you're not going to be able to take care of your children? Are you really afraid being the primary bread earner of your family, you're not going to be able to care for your family? You know, this is what we need to figure out is what is it that's really causing that distress? And that's where the beginning of that mental adjustment comes. For many people, it's being able to have that question asked and answered and then confronting your your biggest fear of whatever it is that you think you're not going to be able to do. And many times there is some alternative or solution. And if we can address that, then it alleviates um, some of that fear and mental adjustment, if you like. I don't know. Does that help? Does that help answer your question any? Oh, of course. Thank you so much. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you for the question. Teresa Breeden, uh, you can ask your question. I know we're running a little short on time, but after Teresa, um, Belinda, can you check and see if there's anyone in the in Clubhouse that wants to ask? And then we'll go to Tom Frank. So, Teresa, well, go my, for it. I guess um, it's a, a two-part question. Is One is, have you heard of macular tele? Lantasia too. Mm-hmm. Yes, of I always hear. I've never heard of that. There, you know, and things like that. I guess it's still fairly new. With my vision, it's constantly changing. I'm not sure if there's any help for it. How do you deal with that when it's never consistent? Well, first of all, macular telling ectasia, just for the people who are listening who have never probably heard of it is a little bit like macular degeneration. Telling ectasia just means there are small abnormal blood vessels that grow in the macula that shouldn't be there. And they cause central vision loss as well, just like you're saying, Teresa. You know, actually, it's been around a long, long time. I think it was just misclassified, misdiagnosed in the past. We now just call it MACTEL. And there's a research protocol going on at the National Eye Institute specifically for that being done by Dr. Emily Chu. So in terms of rehabilitation, the approach is similar to what I've just described, meaning you should see a low vision specialist, somebody who can help you analyze 
where your vision is causing difficulties. Of course, it's all going to be in the central vision. So it's going to impact things like reading and seeing fine details. And you implement similar strategies to people with macular degeneration. They'll include lighting, contrast, magnification, and learning to circumvent the areas of telenectasia that are causing these scotoma, these blind spots that are interfering. Just like macular degeneration, yes, it does change, but macular telenectasia actually can can stabilize and become very consistent. So again, knowing from your retina specialist exactly what stage of this are you at would be would be helpful. If you were seeing me, for example, I would need to try to understand that. But we can build strategies around the changes too. So again, it's a bit of trial and error, right? You'd have to come in and we'd have to try and figure out, okay, what's working, what's not working, and let's try and modify it. So so don't feel discouraged or dismayed that you have something that won't respond to vision rehabilitation strategies. It will. And just be reassured that even if it changes, there will be ways to readjust and readapt to it. But it's frustrating, of course, when something is changing. So I hear you. I hear you there. I was okay. actually diagnosed at NIH. Okay, well, there you go then. So. All right. Thank you. All right, Tom. Two years after getting out of the Army, I went to the VA in West Haven, Connecticut. That was 1973. And they were good because I got one of the first CCTVs, the Apollo. Mm-hmm. And then I had a 6X spheric uh, lens. And that worked great. But one thing I found, and it reminded me when you said the guy had his marble cut in fat, what I found was cheap, cost me six or seven bucks at the time, back in the 70s, was the 10X jeweler's loop that I could Mm -hmm. pop in my eye. And yeah, and I found that jeweler's loop sometimes work the best. There you go. There you go. Thank you, Tom. And that's right. Don't think you have to spend thousands of dollars on a gadget. That's why I'm always saying, I always tell patients, show me what you're using. Show me what you brought in. I don't care if you bought it at CVS or on Amazon. We might still be able to, you know, sometimes I find people have a tool they have no idea how to use. Like you're saying, Tom, that jeweler loop has to be stuck right up against your eye and you have to hold things up close, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'll say to them, you have a perfectly good thing here. And they'll go, it doesn't work at all. I said, well, show me. And I'll watch them using it. And I'll go, you're not even using it right. Here's how you use it. And then they go, oh, I didn't know that. I said, well, there you go. So thank you, Tom. That was that was good. That was nice to hear. Terry, back to you. Anyone who is interested in making an appointment or in seeing you, um, I know you have a website, which is lowvisionservices.org. And there's a lot of good information on there. I've gone through it on uh, your viewpoints on what a low vision evaluation should be, um, some history. There's a lot of good information there. And the phone numbers are there for your three offices. And so if anybody is looking for any of that information, it is on lowvisionservices.org. And with that, I would like to thank you very much. I must say one thing, nobody else is going to, uh, that I have to explain, is that with Dr. Alibi here tonight, 
He doesn't have his little friend with him. <laughs> Dr. Alibi is also on the board of directors of the Metropolitan Washington Ear. And when we have our Zoom board meetings, he is a parrot that's absolutely adorable. That usually comes in and sits on his shoulder. <laughs> so thank the parrot as well. Oh, this is Allison. Oh, we have a raised hand if we have time. Who is it? Nora. No. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Pleased to meet you, Dr. Alibi. Um, my question is, do you have, do you happen to know anything about glasses that would be like a 14X for a 14X strength pair of glasses? So, Nora, how did you come up with 14X of all numbers? Uh, whole number? Um, I have a, a handheld magnifier. That's 14X? Yeah, 14. 14X 14 okay. meaning uh, 14 strength of education. Yes. yes. And I'm wondering if you have anything with, or in a pair of glasses. Well, you know, that 14X magnifier obviously has a lens in it, right? That's yeah. what's creating the magnification. And so that lens can be put in a frame. At that point, they're not called glasses. They're called microscopes. So you could get a 14X microscope, Nora, but you'd you'd be holding things right at the tip of your nose if you were trying to use it to read or do anything. Yeah. So it depends what you were going to try to do with it, whether it would be practical. But there is such a thing. Yeah, of course, you you can have a a 14X pair of glasses, if you like, it would be a monocular system. It would only work on one eye because you'd be holding it so close. You could never use two eyes together. But, um, but, but sure it's, it is possible to do an aura. Yep. Because I need one eye anyway, basically. Yeah. So yes, you could do that. You could absolutely have a 14X so again, I wouldn't call them glasses. I'd call them microscopes at that point. They're really, it's really a microscope right. when it's something that strong that you're going to hold up to your eye to read with. Right. Thank you. Okay, Nora. Mm-hmm. And we have someone on on an iPhone. I'm going to ask you to unmute with your hand raised. Yes. Hi. There you are. I I just wanted to know if there happen to be any resources on your website. I mean, I know I will find this out, but on uh, ROP. So there are no resources on my website about ROP. What, what specific resources are you looking for? Well, I was just wondering about um, any research uh, resources um, having to do with optic nerves or other types of, you know, trials. Um, so you're thinking of clinical trials, right? Clinical trials or uh, other types of research um, resources because I had microsurgeries and I gained um, the use of a weak, my weaker eye as far as size of objects and um, what you might call advanced travel vision and a lot of movements. 
of different size objects. Um, so there was improvement as far as movements and things like that. It's not quite enough to read, but there has been some slight improvement over the years. I've been wearing glasses that are much too powerful for what my optics accept, but there have been minor changes as I continue to wear them. Very minor improvements. It's kind of like a brain challenge, and I just didn't know. If do you, do you see a low vision specialist? Do you have somebody? I, I I never have because, well, other than my surgeon who I haven't seen in several years because, I guess I because I didn't gain the sight that he expected. I, I didn't gain as much sight as since I was a five stage ROP that I got mm. what I got because. Yeah. Yeah. especially the other eye, which I didn't even have a use for before. But it's made a big difference. I have a very wide uh, spectrum in front of me, yeah, uh, no, which is I ironic have... because mm-hmm. a lot of conditions don't have that. I don't have a lot of detail except for size of objects, maybe, and a couple of other things like how much glare colors have, and mm-hmm. maybe a little bit other than that. So that does help, the fact that I have a wide spectrum in front of me yeah i think you you do need to see somebody who who can now harness that vision for you because you what you're describing to me is that you're of course in your surgeon standpoint you you didn't gain what he or she was anticipating but you're uh of course you who have that gain will now say, wow, I have something here I didn't have before, and I wonder if I could make better use of it. The answer is yes, of course. Now, how to harness that? It's hard to, like this, without actually examining your eyes and <laughs> assessing how you're seeing to, to tell you how to take advantage of it. But I, I would highly recommend you see a, a low vision specialist and try to see if we can, someone can take advantage of what you've gained there. It might be, yeah, it might be very useful. It might be very practical for you. Would that be an optometrist or someone with a different title? Yeah, you know, so as it turns out, most low vision specialists are optometrists. Right. But the that doesn't have to be the case. You know, I've met ophthalmologists who are very interested in helping patients with low vision. And even in this metro area, I can think of three ophthalmologists who have come to my office and spent time observing me in in hopes of being able to help their own patients. So mm-hmm. I would say to you, it doesn't have to be an, an optometrist, but it could be um, anyone, even an ophthalmologist who says to you, yeah, I, I, you know, I can do some low vision work with you and I'm willing to try things because like I said, it does take some trial and error. It's, it's not just, this is the correct prescription for your glasses. Now off you go. No, this requires trying things and seeing, can, can we harness that vision that you, you've obviously gained here? So. Thank you. Can mm-hmm. I ask you what part of the, what part of the country are you in? Southern California. Uh, so the optometry school may be the better, best place to start there, right? SCCO, Southern Cal. What's it? Southern California College of Optometry. Oh my goodness! Oh. That may be a good Thank place you. for you to start. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.
Thank you all very much for joining us tonight. But I do want to give one more person. I've got two quick announcements. And Kathy Farina, would you? All right. I would like to tell people that uh, Council of Citizens with Low Vision International has two fundraisers going on right now. One of them is called Tastefully Simple. It's a, a company that that makes um, various food items. Um, they have meal kits. They have um, oils that are infused with herbs. They have um, rubs, you know, that you use on meats when you're cooking meats. They have mixes that are very simple to use. Um, and, you know... We are, this, this fundraiser is happening until November 30th. Uh, if you go to our website, cclvi.org, you can find out more information about it. Uh, the other fundraiser is we are selling the easy to see, um, large print weekly planners, <clears throat> which, um, our, our friend Edward Cohen, uh, was the in, inventor of this calendar. Um, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Well, Edward um, couldn't find a calendar big enough. So he um, invented this calendar and um, we are selling those right now as well. And if you go to our website, cclvi.org, you can find out more information on there. And Edward happens to be on our call tonight. And I just asked him if he wanted to unmute to give anyone a little bit more of an explanation of the calendar. I don't know what more I can say. I'll bet there's people listening who are already buying and using this calendar. Like you said, it uh, it's unique because I couldn't find anything on the market. I needed a lot of space to write. I needed a black edge so I couldn't write off the edge of the paper. And I needed a large uncluttered uh, daily cell. So, and make sure people know that they get a discount if they use the sales code and we get a, a 10% off for customers and the CCLBI gets a 10% of all that people buy. And it's really great. And it runs through the end of February, I believe. And- February 28th. And the code is CCLVI23. Pretty clever, huh? Mm-hmm. Thank you all for being with us this evening, and we will see you back here next month on Let's Talk Low Vision. And in the meanwhile, keep up with our uh, Monday, Thursday, and Friday calls, Zoom calls. Happy holidays, and take care.